morning we want to um, look at uh, class number 11 of 13 on apologetics, defending the faith, um, looking at the study of ethics and freedom. And um, in our effort to look at a Christian worldview, um, we, begin, we, we began with questions about theology, the study of God, and metaphys- metaphysics, the study of reality, or how we can know what reality is. And uh, we started there because a proper understanding of God is essential to our proper understanding of the truth. And we followed that by studying the science of epistemology, the study of knowledge, so that we could understand how do we know what we know, which has actually become an increasingly more important question uh, because of the nature of the society in which we live, that is, within a a postmodern society that says, what is knowledge? How can we know what knowledge is? You know, is there anything that really is um, real knowledge? And so on. And so we, we looked at that. Last week we looked at uh, anthropology to see how we relate this truth to how it defines us. Um, and that brings us to the topic for today, which is ethics. How does truth have a claim on me? What does truth do to me? So, um, let me pray and then we'll get into the material this morning. Lord, thank You for Jesus Christ and that by His stripes that we were healed. And we're um, thankful that we can consider that truth and be reminded of it often. And even this morning, again, in the, the main service, we'll be thinking about that very passage from Isaiah. And uh, Lord, we're, we're grateful for Your love for us and we uh, want to respond to it rightly with glad obedience. So help us in Jesus' name. Amen. Our view of ethics is necessarily connected to our view of freedom. Everyone says freedom is a good thing, but the the um, the difference is how we define freedom and what are we trying to free ourselves from. That's the real question. So that's what we're going to look at this morning how um, our, our freedom are affected by the way that we, we think. Someone who desires to be free from his parents probably has a very different view of what is right and wrong from someone who desires to be free from sin, right? I want to be free from my parents. Well, that actually might not be helpful for you uh, it, from our perspective because your parents are actually there to, to uh, guide you and guard you and protect you. So... Our, uh, the main idea that we want to, to look at today is that Christians believe that morality comes from God and that the fact that there are limitations to morality is actually a gift from God. So morality comes from God. That is, we know what morality is and what it should be based on what He's revealed, both in our hearts, right? We know the difference between right and wrong, and also more clearly in the Scriptures. And that the fact that there are limits to those moralities, that is, there are guardrails to to where we cannot go, is actually a gift from God. Now, that's going to be in contrast to what we see in the moderns and the postmoderns because they're they're constantly looking for how to get outside the limits of morality. Like, I, I don't want those limits. I don't want those restraints. I want freedom from from any kind of morality. And so, as a result, they're they're constantly looking to to um, please their own flesh and not concerned about God. So let's look at the three main views or worldviews that we've been looking at. And this time, 
with regard to their view of freedom and ethics. First, the pre-modern worldview. Pre-modern view of ethics and freedom. Christians believe that, number one, we have the, the references there and they're a little bit unclear what <laughs> what's going on there. But, yeah. Uh, let, can I have someone turn to those first two passages, Hebrews 2 and Hebrews 9? There's supposed to be a semicolon there between the 5 and the 9 there. So there's not 159 chapters in Hebrews. You're not going to find that. So. All right, and Paul, yeah, nine fifteen. Paul, can you look up Romans eight for me? And for all, and for this cause, he is the mediator of the new testament that by means of death, for the redemption of transgressions that were in the first testament, faith which are called might receive the promise of eternal inheritance. Okay. So, so that now that Christ has died, He's He's ransomed us or set us free from the sins that were committed under the first covenant. So, so the first um, the first idea here is that we, according to the scriptures, are freed from sin and death. Turn to Romans chapter eight. I'm going to have Paul read this passage here, Romans eight sixteen to twenty two. But because it's a longer passage, I don't want you to. Um, lose attention here, so be good to follow along as Paul reads. Romans eight, sixteen to twenty two, same idea. We are freed from sin and death. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. And as children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs of the Christ. If indeed we suffer with him so that we may be glorified with him. For I consider that the sufferings of the present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subject to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. Okay. So, as Christians, God is working to free us from sin, which is going to happen in the next life. Um, This is part of the groaning that's happening in all of creation, part of the sufferings, the consequences of sin. And and so, verse 21 says that creation itself will be set free from its slavery. That is the slavery that sin has has brought upon the world. So, uh, the freedom that we're looking for is freedom from sin and death. Secondly, um, we are freed to glorify God. In fact, you see that in verse uh, verse 22. I'm sorry, verse uh, verse. 21, that the creation itself will be set free from its slavery, from sin slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. So we're freed from sin and we're freed to glorify God. So let me have a couple more people look up some passages. Ephesians 3.12. 
Someone raise your hand. Let you know. Okay. Uh, Margaret, Ephesians 3.12, and then Galatians 5.1. Jennifer. All right, and then everybody else can turn to 2 Corinthians 3, and we'll look at that passage together. So we're freed from sin and death. We are freed... Uh, I'm sorry, I skipped down to the third one. I'll get to the second one here in just a second. But freed, we're freed uh, to glorify God. That's your third blank there. And if you listen to Ephesians 3.12. So one of the great benefits of being a Christian, being set apart to God, being freed from sin, is actually uh, being put in a position where we have the ability to please God. Ephesians 3.10 says, find out what's pleasing to the Lord. So we have the ability to please God. We're no longer like, you know, um, all of your righteousnesses are as filthy rags. It's not us anymore. That's, the, that's speaking of unbelievers. Before God, we actually can do acts of righteousness, do things that are pleasing to God. Uh, so we can glorify God. Galatians 5.1 Okay, so Christ has set us free. That's the freedom that, that we now have. And so that actually empowers us to be able to obey God, to actually do what pleases God. That's why He gives a command immediately following that um, that statement about freedom. Now look at 2 Corinthians 3.12-18 and someone read that for us. All right, so we we as New Testament believers have this uh, great new standing and ability to be able to be transformed into the image of Christ. That's the idea of that verse 18 that I often quote and allude to, which is um, we look into the mirror of God's Word. We no longer have the unveiled faces. We look into the mirror of God's Word. And as we do, it transforms us. Now, it's not a magical thing where we just read the words or glance across the... the um, the uh, the black and white there, but but it is as we are uh, appropriating it into our lives, as we're applying it to our lives, it actually changes us from one level of glory to the next. That's how the Spirit works through His Word. So we are freed from sin and death to glorify God. And then actually the second part is we're freed by God and His truth. Um, here in these verses, we are freed by God and His truth. So, would someone read these two passages for us in Psalm 119? Raise your hand so I know you're turning there. Jonathan, thank you. And then James 125, someone else? Mike? And then John 8, 31 and 32. Manser, undo that one for us. John 8, 31 32. Okay, so listen here as we... 
John 8, 31, 32. Yeah, sorry, I was talking about the other mic for the first one. Psalm 119, 31, 32, 45, and 45. Okay, so verse 32 says that we can actually obey God's commands because God has set our hearts free. He, he's the one who's given us that freedom. As we walk in freedom, it's because uh, God has given us the freedom to do so. James 1.25, Mike. Okay. So as we look, again, this is the idea of looking into the perfect law of liberty that God transforms us. This is the the work of God. God's the one who initiates it. He's the one who accomplishes it. We can't take any of the credit for it. John 8, 31 and 32. So Jesus was saying to those Jews who had believed Him, if you continue in My Word, then you are truly disciples of Mine, and you will know the truth, and the truth will make you Okay, so um, so here is where morality comes in. Standards of morality come from God and they exist to set us free. We, we tend to think of standards as restrictions. And in fact, some of your unbelieving friends might actually talk to you about the Christian life in that way, about the life as a believer that, you know, yeah, you, I, I know you're part of that church and that means you can't do all these things. It's, you have all these guardrails up against you and those are actually harmful for you. You can't get out and do what you really want to do. And what we learn from the Scriptures is that actually those guardrails, those standards of, are, standards of morality are actually good for us. They exist to set us free from what was enslaving us outside of the guardrails. Do you see? We were out there following what was most detrimental to us and God's saying, come inside here where real freedom is, where where you will uh, really live. And by living according to God's will, we are freed from sin and death. We're freed to reflect and glorify God. And this is an amazingly rich and joyful view of morality and freedom unmatched by anything anywhere else. So, standards of morality or a standard of morality is God's way of freeing us to follow Him. A standard of morality is God's way of freeing us to follow Him. Any questions on the pre-modern worldview with regard to ethics and freedom? Okay, we've been set free from sin and death. That's a good thing. We've been set free by God and His truth. And we've set, been set free in order to glorify God, something that we could not do before as an unbeliever. Next, the modern view of ethics. And as you see, there's two... Um, Two parts there. There's the Enlightenment view, and then on the next page, the Romanticism view. This is consistent with how we've been looking at the modernist uh, view because that's how it kind of played out in history, and that's how it still has its tentacles uh, in, in much of modern thought as well. Enlightenment thinkers believed that we were freed uh, to be freed from our base passions. Okay, so from our base passions and from our from illegitimate authority. This is what they're trying to get away from. 
these base passions and from illegitimate authority. And then the next part, they believe that man must be freed by or by means of our intellect. Remember, they're all about the mind. It's all about human reason. It's all about uh, reason over faith. Faith isn't important. Trusting in what God has to say isn't important. Um, it's, it's reason. It's, it's your own human mind. So, they want to be freed from their base passions, from illegitimate authority, uh, by their own human reason or intellect. And then they wanted to be freed to advance the progress of the human race. They wanted to be freed to advance the, pro- the progress of the human race. Now, there are some similarities. If you just think about even that very first one, they want to be freed from their base passions. Right, and we sh- we should agree with them that yes, we want to be freed from our base passions as well. Though that is the sinful ones that are enslaving us. Um, we should also agree-, agree with them that we should want to see come some kind of progress within the human race, uh, within this world. Immanuel Kant argued that we are only truly free when we have willed the legal and moral laws under which we live. In other words, anything that was determined outside of you is is a law that that's that's not de- determined by you and therefore it's it's uh suffocating you or it's oppressing you in some way you need to get out from under that the only way you truly can be free is if you're the one making the laws and uh so obviously he's an enlightenment thinker um and one reason that the enlightenment is so seductive for Christians is because so many of its doctrines are Christian doctrines without the the proper um, the the proper view of knowledge as a backdrop, and Kant's notion of freedom can easily be translated to us uh, seeking to be conformed to God's image. Well, you know, we want to be conformed to God's image. We don't want to have anything from outside of us controlling us, and that's why Enlightenment thinkers still retained a largely Christian view of morality. They came up with similar lists of virtues and vices that we have. And they exhorted people to live well, to do good to others, to seek perfection in an effort to avoid base passions and live an enlightened life. And in so many ways, enlightenment really is um, a secularized version of Christianity. We could say it's actually a wolf in sheep's clothing. However, in secularizing it, Immanuel Kant and the others dropped any idea of, and here's one of the main problems, they dropped the idea of original sin. That's actually your second problem there. The three three obvious problems with the Enlightenment view that we need to address. Um, their goal, remember, is to be free from themselves, their own base passions, and from the illegitimate authority outside of them. And um, some of the problems that are created is, first, that the agent of our freedom is our own intellect. There is no... The, the ought is... Uh, self-imposed. So, there's supposed to be a D on the end there, but the ought is self-imposed. So, there's nothing outside of me that's telling me, you know, like for us, as Christians, pre-moderns, we're saying, listen, God is outside of me. He's telling me what I ought to do. Right? For them, they're saying, no, it's nothing outside of you. It's all self-imposed. And so, there's a problem with that because I become my own master. I become my own king. I determine what's right and what's wrong. I determine the course for my life, not 
God, I submit myself to You. What is it that You want me to do? Secondly, more importantly, we Christians should recognize that the intellect is part of fallen human nature and it too can be terribly sinful and deceitful. That is, our minds can be deceitful. And so we can use one part of our sinful nature to try to free another part. That's really, If you follow the Enlightenment view, that's basically what you're going to be doing. And so they deny the doctrine of original sin. You know, that, that people by nature for them are generally good. And so they're going to uh, eventually get make their way to whatever they want. And um, the, the problem is in order to correct any sort of correction that we try to do if we follow their model, we, we have to use our sinful nature, our own sinful nature, our own sinful mind to get us there. And that's not going to work. Thirdly, the view creates serious political implications. <clears throat> the uh, Enlightenment view creates serious political implications. The Enlightenment can slide very easily into a quick and lazy justification for civil disobedience and even revolution. Now, we have clear instructions from the Scriptures with regard to human government. Romans 13 says that we must submit ourselves to those who rule over us, speaking of uh, public authorities, even unbelieving authorities. There's no exception there that says, well, if they're not a Christian, you don't have to obey them. No, all of your authorities, in fact, Paul's speaking at the time in which Nero is his emperor. Uh, And so, the command there is to obey the government. And so that sets a, a very high standard for us as Christians when it comes uh, that, that we only have very rare cases when we can disobey the human government. There's, there are very few cases in which we can disobey the human government. But descendants, our descendants of the Enlightenment period thinking uh, of that kind of thinking have higher expectations of what the government can achieve. And so, they are more quick or, or they are quicker to, to demonize the human government. Do you see any of that in any of the news programs that you watch? Okay, that they, all human government is bad and even we in America, you know, the best human government that there is on the face of the earth right now, uh, is st- our government is still demonized as if it does no good at all. And um, that's, that's the type of thinking that comes from an Enlightenment sort of mind. It's that it, there is illegitimate authority out there and we cannot have them ruling over us. We need to be freed from that. So we need to get out of that shackle, that shackled sort of living and get to a place where we are free to make our own laws. Um, and uh, similarly... This kind of thinking leads to a desire to have some sort of utopian society and that society ends up turning into an idol. And history is full of examples of whole um, whole generations of people that are seeking after this kind of false god, that is, this kind of utopian society that, that can never exist apart from, um, apart from the rightful ruler Jesus Christ reigning over all. Only God is able to restore creation to what it ought to be. So that's the Enlightenment uh, period. The second part of the modern thinking is the Romanticism type thinkers. They take us further 
than the Enlightenment, uh, and they're actually closer to postmodern um, when it comes postmoderns when it comes to their view of ethics and freedom. So first, Romanticism thinkers believe that we are freed from emotional repression and social convention. Emotional repression and social convention. Remember, um, while the Enlightenment thinkers are all about the mind, it's all about we, we can come to true knowledge through our minds, where we believe that we can come to true knowledge from God, right? The, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Romantic, romanticism thinkers are more about feelings. It's all about what we feel. So how can we feel good enough to get there? And so what they're trying to be freed from is this emotional repression, something that's holding me back in some way. And then they believe that we are freed by means of inner sense, or we could just say feeling, by means of feeling. Our inner sense or psychotherapy or communion with nature. And the goal for them that we are freed to glorify ourselves and enjoy man forever. Okay, a little bit of a a dig against their view there. Um, you probably hear some of the Westminster Catechism there that our goal in life is to to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. For them, it's to glorify ourselves and enjoy man forever. And so, the contrast here could not be starker. Well, the, Roman- the the Enlightenment are really just have all of the the um, the Christian sorts of ideas, but then they they mix them in with all their pagan philosophies. Here, they they the uh, the contrast is very stark because for us, biblical Christianity, we want to be freed from our sin sin nature, but Romanticism wants to free themselves to their sin nature. That is that's their goal. They want to get to a place where they can enjoy themselves as much as possible regardless of the sin that it's going to take to get there. And so in this sense, Romanticism is indistinguishable from what we're going to see next, postmodernism. Any questions on the modern view of ethics and freedom? <clears throat> All right, postmodern. Postmoderns want to free us from meta-narratives. Okay, meta-narratives. What they, the way that they look at life, remember, is they think that um, they are a social construction. They don't really know what reality is. What is reality? Again, it's back to the, the uh, matrix idea. And so it's hard to know what truth really is. And so they think the only reason that they are the way that they are is because there's some kind of a bigger narrative that's going on outside of them. So they're trying to free themselves from that and also from any form of morality or any any um, guardrail of morality. They want, they want to be freed from that. And the means, they want to be freed by their favorite weapon, which is deconstructionism. Remember what deconstructionism is? Anyone take a shot, shot at that? Right. Right. So you you try to make an absolute statement, you know that God is and that God demands that you, you know, repent and believe in the gospel and they say, "Well, wait a second, you can't say that God is. You can't say that there's a gospel. 
And so they deconstruct it. It's like they tear the building back down that you're trying to, to build up. Say, listen, this is true. This is accurate. Two plus two is four. And they start to deconstruct. Well, is two, two, two plus two really four? You know, they, they just, it's just an endless questioning of everything. That's deconstructionism. So how can they be freed from morality? How can they be freed from this meta-narrative that's forcing them into the person that they are? Well, they need to just deconstruct everything. They, they, they want to live these unillusioned lives. And um, they want everybody to be postmoderns just like them. All right. And then finally, let's see if I've got what they're, they're being freed to. The goal is that they want to wallow in their sin natures. They, are, they want to be freed to basically enjoy their sin. Now, they probably wouldn't uh, say it in this way, but basically they want to be unburdened by any outside authority, whether it be church or state or family. And they do it all in the name of freedom. That's why we've got to be careful when people say, you know, I'm, I'm searching for freedom. Because freedom has a lot of different um, uh, connotations depending on how you're using it. You know, if we're talking about freedom of our country from, from the tyranny of other governments or from even the, the tyranny of our own government, that's one thing. But what are we talking about? Freedom from what? You know, postmoderns are constantly thinking we need to be freed from all sorts of outside rules so that I can be my own person. I can determine who I want to be. And so, where's morality? You know, what counts as right and wrong? In romanticism, each individual is, is their own God, effectively. And they only need to get in touch with this universal God consciousness within themselves to act morally. Well, in postmodernism, any individual can be a fully licensed deconstructionist. And so that's their supreme act as a person. It's to deconstruct. And that's what they're going to do when you talk to them about the gospel. When you talk to them about why you believe what you believe. They're just going to deconstruct it and, and go back to the idea that Jonathan's bringing up, which is, you know, well, that's just, that's your, that's good for you. That's fine. But not for me. No one can impose anything on me. Don't tell me that I have God as a judge because I don't. You might have him as your judge. That's fine. You can believe that, but not for me. And so it's it's again it's hard to to um, to communicate with these discuss serious matters with these people because they tend to 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 be so um, uh, evasive in their their thinking. So according to their standards, virtually every mindset and action is justified. Doesn't matter where you are in the spectrum um, of what we've talked about: pre-modern, modern, postmodern. Um, everything is justified in their minds. Uh, the only problem that they have is when someone actually holds to an absolute, something that's actually true. If you you can you can believe what you want to believe, but don't say that it's it's um, it, it's it has to be forced on me. And so, if taken to its logical extreme, this worldview would leave would would lead to, and this is what they need to come to recognize, and we need to help them. It would lead to social and political chaos. It would actually lead to anarchy and a great evil in personal relationships. So, how do we respond? Here's some thoughts in closing. Christian's response to moderns and postmoderns. 
Number one, be joyful. As Christians, we should rejoice to have God's will to follow. So, uh, don't see your life as a drudgery. As if, man, I see these unbelieving friends and they can just do whatever they want and they seem to be so happy. Like Psalm 73, the psalmist has that sort of idea. Like It seems like everything they do, they, you know, they're, they're rich, they're enjoying life, they don't seem to have any problems. And then there's my life. You know, and, I, and it's just a big drag. And as Christians, we should actually recognize that what God has done by bringing us inside the guardrails of morality is He's actually freed us from something that they can't get out of. We are in a much better position than they. Without God, we are rudderless and astray. And actually, uh, rudderless meaning we have no, we have no direction in life, but we are headed somewhere. Right? If we are rudderless, we are actually headed towards the judgment, uh, the, the great white throne judgment where we will stand before the Almighty God and be destroyed because there was nothing that we have to stand on. And so to be inside the guardrail, guardrails is the most freeing that we can be. <clears throat> the bottom line of Christianity is that we are called to seek the kingdom of God and His righteousness, Matthew 6.33. Um, that, is, that is what God demands of us. So be joyful. Don't don't see uh, freedom from sin or don't see the, the guardrails of morality as a bad thing. Secondly, be free. This is what God guides us to do. This is one of the things that He wants us to do. We we are now free to... Do you remember the, what we were freed to do? We're now free to glorify or to please God. So be free in that way. Now that you're inside a place where you can actually please God, live your life to please God. Be free. Thirdly, be holy. <clears throat> you want to know what God's will for you is? It is to be holy, right? First Thessalonians 4, 3 says, This is the will of God, even your sanctification that you abstain from sexual immorality. So you want to know what God's will is? There's, this is the will of God. You know, Be thankful in everything. In everything, give thanks. This is the will of God in Christ Jesus. Right? So there's lots of things that we can look at in the Scriptures. Clear, clearly, the will of God is to be pure, be thankful. Right? So, so be holy. God has made it clear that, that He has called us to live a life of righteousness, of holiness, but recognize at the same time that our salvation is not dependent on our own righteousness, right? It's dependent on Christ's righteousness. That's what we began by saying, that He was wounded by His stripes, we are healed. It's not because of our righteousness that God's going to accept us. God already accepts us on the basis of Christ's righteousness and what He has imputed to our account. And so we should live like that and act like that. Hey, I'm a child of the King. And then fourthly... Be annoying. Okay? Be annoying. <laughs> In your conversations with, especially postmodernists, be annoying. That is, prod them with good questions. Arguing against moral, relative, uh, moral relativists, these postmoderns, is almost too easy, but so many people still claim that there is, um, that it's, Morally allowable to do whatever it takes to be happy, find fulfillment, to be free. But but point out the obvious flaws in their thinking. Okay, first of all, their ideal 
is to be completely free. But here's what they need to recognize. Here's what we need to recognize. We are not completely free as believers. We, we've seen that today. But did you know that even God's not free to do whatever He pleases? Now, now in one sense, if we put it on a scale or a spectrum, yes, God is the most free to do whatever He pleases. But God's not free to sin. right? God's not free to go outside the bounds of His own morality that He's determined. He's not free to do that, is He? So, so even God has put restrictions on Himself and in a, in a sense, He's not fully free. Now, He's the most free of any of any being in the uh, universe. But this is what they're looking for. We want to get outside of all of these bounds of, uh, of, that, are, that are holding us in. Sometimes we think like this as Christians. You know, we want to be completely free. Why am I being restricted by this authority, by this whatever? And, and even God's not free in that way. So help, help them to see that. But also point out the obvious evils in the world, like 9-11, the Holocaust, and force them to acknowledge that there actually is evil in the world. Because here's a, an answer that they don't have. Okay? We don't have all the answers to, to why all the evil happens. But, but try to figure out why they think that evil exists in the world. And then challenge them with this. Is it possible, even possible, that in addition to the great evils out there in the world, that there could be some evil in your heart? And if so, your heart is what's supposed to be the best guide for getting you to your place of freedom. But what if there's evil in your heart? What does that mean? See, we have to help them to see that there is a higher guide and a more reliable path that's outside of them. And that's actually a good thing. That it, that it is the most freeing thing a person can ever experience to be within the, the boundaries of God's love and restrictions. All right, any other thoughts on, on talking with unbelievers about ethics and freedom? Any questions on anything we looked at today? Greg? Well, Solomon said there's nothing new under the sun. So really, a lot of the heresies that we see today are just repackaged old ones. So in one sense, um, but as far as developed in uh, thought and written out and that sort of thing, uh, the the Enlightenment period I think was around the 16th, 17th century and the Romanticism period around that same time. And then that led into the postmodern thinking, which is like the 20th century and beyond. Yes, yes, from Europe. Yeah, the Enlightenment and the Romanticism um, both developed in Europe and then came over to here and and it spread uh, pretty much across the globe. Again, there are some people, some people groups who are more pre-modern in their thinking even though they're not Christian. That is, they believe in one true and living God. Uh, They don't believe in our God, but they believe in a God um, and they have morals. They they believe that there are absolutes. so, like Muslims, for example, are not postmoderns, um, but but yet, but even before, let's say the 16th century, there was still this kind of thinking. Um, most people were postmodern in their thinking, and that there was one God, and that there are morals, that there is a God who's transcendent. Now they didn't all follow him, but they believed in that way. Now we've we've gotten so far away from that 
now in the 21st century that, that people are just like, well, just believe whatever you want. You know, it's fine for you. Whatever's good for you, it's fine. Yeah. Yeah, I think the average person on the street's going to think that way, but it's ha- definitely hasn't been that way across the board. We still there are there is hope. I mean, there's still Christians in our country. You know, praise God for that and and there are Christians in our government. So, um and we still do abide by some laws that are based on scriptural principles and still believe that there there is good and evil. You know, we still have people out there that say, you know, this mass murderer, this, you know, serial killer, that's actually not a good thing. Well, how, how would you, how would a postmodernist look at that? Like a true postmodernist, that's the kind of questions we can ask them. Is well, what makes it wrong for him? He's just trying to get outside the the bounds of morality, right? He's just trying to pursue freedom. So why can't he do that by killing people? I mean, that's a bizarre way to think, but that's effectively, that's the logical conclusion of where these postmodernists have to go if they believe what they say they believe. And and that's part of what apologetics is. It's helping helping them to draw out some of the conclusions that they haven't considered themselves. See, we, we in some ways have to understand their thinking better than they do because sometimes people just do it just because, hey, everybody else is doing it or, you know, this is the way I've always been taught but they don't know why they think that way. They haven't really thought about the logical conclusions. And that's part of what apologetics is. Remember, I started at the beginning by saying um, part of it is to go into, if you think of their worldview like a house, you want to go and knock some of their furniture down. That's part of what those kind of questions do. And then you want to take them into your house and show them, hey, this is this furniture actually fits here. This makes sense. Do you see why it makes sense? You know, And that's when we show them the truth of the Scripture, but we also want to go in their house and knock some of their furniture down and say, that doesn't work there. You can't put that there. That doesn't even make sense. It would never fit. And and they need to see that. But but they're not going to see that um, if they just continue on their merry way. They need to be confronted with truth. That's that's the um, that's the point. Jonathan? Yeah. That's true, yeah. Yep. And that's why our constitution is so decentralized, you know, it's it's um that is there's a three the balance of power type idea because it's not in one person that all the truth is found, but it's actually in a collective, you know, in, as a whole we can figure out what the truth is, we can know it, we can follow it. And so yeah, you're right. 17th 18th century. Yeah. Well. Yeah. Well, um, that would be a, a longer discussion that we'd have to have, but um, I'll let you just, you talk about that around the water cooler. Um, any other thoughts or questions on ethics and freedom? Yeah. Book 
Yeah, so for Jesus, um, one of the ways they, uh, the, the theologians describe uh, us as human, let's say Adam and Eve, they had the ability not to sin. If they didn't eat of the tree, they actually had the ability to live their entire lives and actually continue on living. They wouldn't have died. Um, they had the ability not to sin. We have the ability, uh, we don't have the ability not to sin. Now that we're depraved, we've taken on the sin of Adam where we have representative sin. Uh, that's what original sin is. That That's uh, found in Romans chapter 5 that by one man's sin, sin entered the world and death by sin. So all of us now have sin. But Jesus, or we could say God, the Godhead, um, does not have the ability to sin. So Adam and Eve had the ability not to sin. We don't have the ability not to sin. Jesus does not have the ability to sin. So, when He came to the earth, it wasn't even a possibility that He could sin. Now, He could still be tempted and we can get into a lot more of that, but, but that's the idea. Is, is There's a boundary around God that He has set up says, I cannot sin. Okay? I, God cannot lie. God cannot, um, God cannot do anything that would be against His character or His will. Right? I mean, He's already determined what He's going to do for all time. He cannot, cannot do anything outside of that. Jonathan? <coughs> oh, a standard of morality. All right, let's pray and we'll be dismissed. Lord, thank You for um, Your will. We thank You that we can find out what You want in our lives. And forgive us, Lord, for, for being frustrated and, and wanting to go outside of Your designed will for our lives or Your desires for us. Lord, we, we do um, love to pursue our sin at times and think that it will satisfy long-term, but we're thankful for Your for your loving hand of grace that pulls us back in and Your forgiveness that's there to meet us when we come and repent of our sins. And Lord, we pray that You would continually keep us within the bounds of morality by uh, showing us the truth that You have for us in Your Word by... Um, lovingly instructing us through believers that know us and and pray for us and care about us and that you would also even use the circumstances in life to keep us from straying away from you. We pray for your help in Jesus' name. Amen.